This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, and I'm the editor of The Pulse, and you're listening to the Dora Kenny Pulse podcast. And today I'm talking with retired Lieutenant Colonel Craig Harvey, who is with the Marines. Thanks for being on, Craig. Thanks for having me. So uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel, tell us a little bit about uh, what that means and what you're doing in Egg Harbor. <laughs> okay. Or actually Fish Creek, right? It's not you Egg Harbor. You know Harbor. Yeah, it is. It okay. Is. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, we love Egg Harbor. Yeah, as a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel, it's a fairly typical career, uh, successful career for a Marine officer. How long were you in, Craig? Just, uh, well, 24 years. Hmm. I I spent my first four years in the reserves going to college and trying to make my application for a commission more competitive. Okay. And so I had a great experience with that, was with a a great reserve company, and it really helped propel my career Hmm. from there. Okay. So then you retired, what, 2017? Yeah, is 2017, that? yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, and it, it was just uh, an opportunity to, to transition to more family-oriented life. And I think it's just been a pleasure. We, we've all just been super happy to have all the time together, and it's really worked out well. All right, awesome. Well, we are talking today because of the things that have happened in Afghanistan over the past week. And we have spoken previously, and you generously talked with me for a long time about what has happened and how we withdrew from Afghanistan for the story that's in today's Peninsula Pulse. So thank you for that. But we talked about so many things, and those things can never make it all into the paper, and you have so much to say about this that I really wanted to to get you on here so you could tell all of those things to our listeners. So let's first talk about the withdrawal. I mean, it's receiving a lot of criticism And what are your thoughts, your perspective from a commissioned officer and also from having spent time in Afghanistan, right? Sure. Okay. I think, you know, our presence in Afghanistan, like our presence anywhere, depends on how the chief executive wants to project power, wants to maintain relationships on the international stage. And I think from the beginning in Afghanistan, you know, I'm not sure that anyone had planned to be there for a real length of time. You Mm -hmm. know, we we sort of expected a discrete operation. Hey, we need to find some bad actors and uh, make sure that they can't hurt us in the future, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I guess I should start out by saying, you know, statesmanship is not a simple thing. And by that, you mean our relationships with other countries and especially the other countries that were over there, because I think in the beginning we had 42 countries. Coalition partners. Exactly. Right. Which is, I think most people would agree, a best practice is is working with our friends Mm -hmm. to accomplish common goals. And then we have better buy-in on an international scene also, because Mm -hmm. it doesn't just look like us exerting our our will Mm -hmm. on someone else. It's an international decision-making process. And this is how to be a good international 
neighbor mm-hmm. and the right way to act in the, the global world mm-hmm. that, that we live in. Right. So at some point, I mean, this is, you know, because I was reviewing what happened in Afghanistan, I think most of us, because it was 20 years, I mean, we just really are guilty of forgetting that we even still had a presence over there and what we were actually doing over there. So I was just kind of surprised to learn as early as 2002, that is when we actually started shifting into a narrative of reconstructing Afghanistan. And that is when we were... Might have been 2012? No, 2002, which I was, you know, absolutely shocked to see this. It was, you know, over the next decade, we would spend $38 billion in humanitarian and reconstruction assistance. But at that point, after we had done the initial bombing for, you know, about a year, at that point, we were then talking about reconstruction. And I think I, that's when we heard of the hearts and minds and winning hearts and minds. But then what would happen, you know, intervening would be major combat operations. And then we would say again, you know, say 2012, okay, you know, combat operations are over, we're now shifting into this. So we would keep going back and forth. Then we dropped the mother of all bombs in 2017, you know, and this is after, I think it was Rumsfeld had already declared our, you know, war on terrorism pretty much accomplished over there. So we went kind of back and forth, back and forth. And we were talking about this concept of, you know, what was the narrative? What was our mission over there? What did you understand it to be when you were there and with your career? Sure. Yeah, I think um, what we lose sight of, and it's it's difficult to keep it in perspective, is there is an ebb and flow to okay. these operations. And there's a seasonal ebb and flow, especially in a place like Afghanistan. You know, in the wintertime, everybody kind of hunkers down and the fighting season starts in the summer. Hmm. But we're dealing with non-state actors. Hmm. And it's it's easier for us to think, you know, especially Americans by teams, it's my team against your team and the teams wear uniforms and everybody can identify each other. And in this case, like we learned so vividly in Vietnam with the Viet Cong, was that we're dealing with non-state actors who are very slippery mm. to, to get a grasp of. And they're conducting their recruitment drives and you know they're, they're collecting money and attempting to further their organizational goals at the same time, you know, we're trying to do the same thing. Undetected, so it was not easy to detect what they were doing? Well, is, sure. Is that what you're saying? Because they look like everyone else on the street. And that's what I thought you were saying. Okay, yeah. so it is really just a, an appearance right. thing. Okay. Right, and so... It's very challenging to understand, well, how many people do they have Mm -hmm, and how mm -hmm. much money do they have? And it's even harder to communicate that to the American public because Mm -hmm. how much, how many of your poker cards do you reveal Mm -hmm. in, in the game that you're playing? And like, we can't tell, we don't know, we can't really get a handle on this. Yeah. If you know too much, then they know that they need to hunker down and wait a little while. Right. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows that, you know, the American public is fickle Mm -hmm. and that. And when you say everybody, probably not Americans know that. Right. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So you're talking about people around the globe. Okay. Right. Mm Yeah. And so the will to stay in the fight, you know, the bad guys, they want to leverage that fact that they know that people are tired of losing their children and, and something that they increasingly forget 
get the purpose of. And so there's a lot of complex issues that, that weigh in on, you know, how's the effort going and mm-hmm. is the, the war on terrorism over, you know, everybody else is on the run and we're doing great and mm-hmm. now we can reduce mm-hmm. our forces. And then nine months later, wow, what, what, what's happening with all these attacks on, you know, embassies, hotels and, and things across the planet. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we realized, well, we need to bring more people in to take care of this growth that's appeared. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, you see that when you look at a timeline, which is really fascinating to do, you do definitely see that ebb and flow. We think we have a handle on it. Oh, look, we don't. There's then all of those suicide bombings in Kabul. I think it was probably after we killed Osama bin Laden that that's when they started polling Americans and and learning that they were growing tired, you know, of this war. So bin Laden was killed in 2011. That was it. Sure. It, and I, I think the, the polling happens from the beginning. Okay. You know, there's the professional pollsters that, you know, they, they go out and, and they're doing their thing. I, I think for most of us, though, up until that point, the polls were revealing that, that Americans were still like, hey, we still need to get bin Laden. We, yeah. still, need, we still need a force presence because there. Because that's why we went over, right? right. Ostensibly. That's yeah, why and, we and went there. You can never forget the, the images of 9-11 in, sure. your, in your head. And, and somebody needs to be held accountable for that. And, yes. and so, yes, we need to expend resources to do this so this can't happen again to my kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then after that, the polls started making more headlines because now the American sentiment has shifted from, yeah, I, I don't like the idea of having U.S. service members in Afghanistan, but we need them there. Mm-hmm. Now it's shifting to, um, now why do we have Americans over there? Why are we putting you know my family at risk, You know, my friends and family, they're in the military at risk to go over there? And so those polls started declining on, um, you know, the American general consensus on sure. where what we were tolerating. And that happened immediately after bin Laden was killed. And so do you think it's also that, you know, Americans over here, okay, now that we got bin Laden, there are no more terrorists. That terrorist network is now dismantled and gone. And that was probably what we all thought, right? Yay, the war is won. Now the American troops can come home. But how far from the truth was that? Well, I I think, unfortunately, that's the fallacy of fighting these non-state actors, Mm. um, terrorists, is that when one is killed, there's someone else who steps up to take that position, Mm-hmm. Some are more charismatic than others. Some are more successful in what they do than others. But it's just like anything. You know, there's the world is full of people who are easily displeased by what they see, you know, the West doing. Mm-hmm. And so it can be easy to recruit people, even from our own country, sure. to do some pretty radical stuff. And so for us to kill one leader and think, well, that's it, we're done, mm-hmm. that just doesn't work in today's environment. So that's kind of a danger in that kind of narrative, too, because if you set it up for the American people, like this is the person who epitomizes all of the evil that exists in the world then or in the world that will attack us and cause another 9-11, then we just think, okay, well, it's over. I mean, so there's kind of a a real danger in pinning it on, you know, one person, even though 
it almost seems like you have to do that in order to get people to mobilize because otherwise it's too abstract. It's true. And, yeah. and that's the conundrum. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there mm-hmm. is no flag on the hill to capture Yeah, right. because someone else would just raise their flag. Sure. And, and that's difficult for Americans to remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, so you were then sent to Afghanistan in 2012. So talk to us a little bit about your tour there. Sure. I, I was a, a major with mm-hmm. the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. I was a part of um, the assistant chief of staff for logistics's staff. Okay. And my role primarily during that tour in 2012 was we were reducing our footprint in Afghanistan. Oh. And the United States had become very sensitive to our force levels in Afghanistan. The Afghani government was establishing some thresholds that their comfort level um, of having an American military presence there. Okay. And so that was troops and equipment. How much can you maintain here? And ironically, while they were very sensitive about how many U.S. service people, how many service members that we could have there in country, in many ways we could substitute contractors for active duty military or, or reserves or National Guardsmen who, who were there. Oh, interesting. And so that's where you would see the rise of many of those contracting companies okay. and their presence there. And like pilots, the number of pilots, instead of having military pilots flying stuff around people mm-hmm. and things, it might have been Evergreen Aviation or somebody else there um, who's specialized in that kind of thing since okay. at least the Vietnam War. Or like building airports or any yes. construction jobs. Security of major operations. F- okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where you would see convoy, you know, security support instead of it being military, U.S. military, it, it would be private contractors running security for convoys and things too. Okay. Very common. Okay. And so that was 2012 and it was uh, the Pentagon's plan to conclude combat missions by mid-2013. That's what Obama said in mid-2013. Right. And shift primarily to security assistance. So that's what we were supposed to be doing. And it kind of sounds like that's what your mission was for that year. Yeah. And so for uh, the Marine Air Wing, that was responsible for all marine aviation missions. So supporting ground operations and doing all all things aviation. My responsibility was to make sure that we were responsibly recovering our equipment Mm -hmm. and reducing the manpower we had there in country Mm -hmm. and returning that equipment back to the United States where we could recondition it and get it ready for the next big thing. Okay. So that we're ready to go. And and that's kind of the Marine lifestyle. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, because that was your role while you were over there for years to carefully plan the withdrawal of material assets as well as people. And then what we see last week is everybody coming out all at one time. Had everything been drawn down to that point? Well, I know I'm skipping ahead, but it's bringing up parallels. Yeah. And that's the way it is. That's the way Mm -hmm. these operations go. And it, it, again, it's that ebb and flow Mm -hmm. of, you know, effort as it comes and goes. And so in 2012, to give you an example of how important it was for us to focus on all our property that was there, 
the Marines, all the services use a, a certain material that we put down on the ground. We call it AM2 matting. It's an expeditionary airfield matting. Okay. And essentially we build runways from it and ramps huh. and it allows the aircraft to land where there's no pavement Okay. Um, you know, you can find a you can you can make an area of ground flat, lay down this matting, and then you can operate jet aircraft and everything that might be kind of sensitive to a dirty, rocky, you know, environment. Okay. And conduct an operations. Essentially, you're setting up an expeditionary airfield. Most of the services consider that stuff disposable. Okay. You can put it down on the ground. It's locked in, and it's being worn and used up. And then when you leave, you just leave it in place. It's just a consumable, and okay. it's done. The Marines we're we're small. We have a we have a small budget, so okay. we pull that stuff up out of the dirt, mm-hmm. and we were putting it on trucks. And and remember, in in 2012, Pakistan had said we're not going to allow the United States to use our ports and oh, and, and right. landlines yeah. uh, to get into Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So we had to find alternative routes, and so. So we were convoying this matting, this AM2 matting, which most of the services considered consumable, mm-hmm. up through a northerly route to get it to a port in Russia, hmm. where then it would be put on ships and, and brought around back to the United States, where there was one company that really had the capability to recondition it and give it back to us so we're ready to go conduct operations elsewhere. Okay. So it was it was important for us to even remove yeah. these materials and get them out, let, right. al- let alone, you know, our, our aircraft and guns and guns, facilities, mm-hmm. you know, everything that we'd have. Mm-hmm. So after putting so much effort into that right. and tracking it carefully and and it was a big deal to lose a truck to an avalanche, you know, trying to cross the mountains to get it out yeah. of the out of the country. Yeah, there was still, as I understand, quite a bit of equipment that we probably didn't intend to leave behind. But then we had built up the Afghan National Army and, and mm-hmm. you know, we, we had sold them, given them, mm-hmm. provided a lot of equipment to sure. conduct their operations to try and make them stable and mm-hmm. capable of standing their own, on their own feet. And so now all of that equipment is now in the Taliban's Billions control. of dollars of equipment, yeah. Right. And so That's just crazy. I just have to comment on that. I mean, crazy picking that stuff up and actually bringing it through through very dangerous northern regions in Afghanistan to Russia just to recondition this stuff that other branches throw away. Yeah. I mean, that is just crazy. And that's that's kind of that Marine mentality. We're kind of unique for it. We're bullheaded about that kind of thing. So <laughs> Okay. But we would get it back and it would be shot up because there there would be, you know, snipers on wow. the roads. And Afghanistan, you know, is, is such a tribal area. It's such a tribal nation that you know, the, the tribes would charge their own road taxes. And so okay. you, you'd pay the, the, you know, the senior member of the family or whoever a, a tax so that you could pass safely on their stretch of road. Okay. And, and you would still run into areas where, you know, bandits or, you know, whoever would just say, oh, well, let's take a shot at, at uh, this equipment. So it, it would be shot up and lost in avalanche. And it was just a, wow. it was just a crazy thing, but we were doing it. It was important to us. Right. Sure. Yeah. Now you were on base Obviously, but you must have gotten a feel for um, the culture in that country. Did you, I guess, I should ask first of all. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the culture? Sure. Yeah. So Afghanistan, most people probably understand, you know, half of Afghanistan is Pashtun. And Mm -hmm. so that's, um, you know, they speak Pashtun and they have very, what I consider unique cultural beliefs. And that is mostly what the, that is the backbone pretty much of the Taliban, correct? That ethnicity? 
I would say so. Is it even considered an ethnicity? Or yes. Is it, okay. Yeah. Right. And they have a very different way of thinking than Western society does. And even compared to places like Iraq, where I would see many similarities between normal average Iraqi people Mm -hmm. to Americans Mm -hmm. and where they could, you know, the women would wear blue jeans and Mm -hmm. they would be drinking Mm Coca-Cola and literally the day after major gunfights, they would be out on the sidewalks opening up their little businesses, like making sandwiches or something and trying to, to make a dollar and live what we would consider a normal life. And, wow. and, you know, people were just being killed in combat on this street yesterday, but today they know it's, it's safe. The Americans have taken control and now here they are with their little rickshaw and, and they're setting up a shop and, and yeah. it seems very normal for a Westerner to see that. And How long were you in Iraq not to keep going on sidelines? Yeah, I did um, two combat tours there, probably combat tours. Okay. Yeah. Two combat tours in Iraq, probably about 14 months total time. Okay. Okay. There and in different parts of the country too, which can be very different. Again, depending on sure. you know who who is predominantly in in that part of the country. So you really got to know Iraq and its people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and really outliving with them and in Afghanistan and and you know wherever we go, wherever Americans go, the military, we we typically try to contract with local businesses to you know, for trucking or for services on a camp or something like they, they may take the trash away. They may provide porta johns and service okay. those and things like that. So we try to do that as, you know, as an American thing. Let's, you know, we're here. We want to do business with you and, and help your local economies and things. And so we meet a lot of those business people, sure. um, even when we're not, you know, out on combat patrols or, or, you know, doing something out in the countryside. Yes. And that's in Afghanistan. For me, being on a higher headquarters, that was more of what I saw was dealing with the contractors coming in and, and kind of working with them to make sure that we were able to, you know, function the way we wanted to. Right. And with the Pashtun, they have such a different way of thinking. And this is the, this is the more strict interpretation of Islamic law, correct? Where women must wear burqas and cannot participate in public life in any way. Yeah, they they, uh, they probably tend to prescribe more to the Sharia okay. lifestyle, I would call it, their, their Sharia law yes. uh, that kind of governs how they conduct their lives. They do tend to gravitate toward that. I'm not sure that they all do. It's just like just okay. like Americans, you know, we, we have Catholics and Lutherans yeah. and depending on where you're at, some are more devoted to that than others. Sure. And so you would see the same thing anywhere in the world that I've been. You know, there were some that were stricter in their beliefs than others. Okay. But in general with the Pashtun, my experience was that they had been so conditioned, for example, in how they felt toward women mm-hmm. that to them, women were a dirty necessity. Mm. And I'm sure that there were, you know, Pashtun couples that were truly in love and, mm-hmm. and living, you know, what they thought were quality. You know, they felt like quality lives in, in, the, in their um, lifestyle. But there was such a distrust, antagonistic sort of perspective toward women that it didn't seem uncommon for, for example, you know, to hear stories about young men who were being arranged in a marriage and, and now they were marrying this woman who they've been raised to believe was dirty and wasn't something that they really wanted to 
touch or maybe even be around. I mean, they, they had their mothers, but it's just, it's, it's a funny relationship. And, mm. and, you know, I, for me to try and understand it is, is difficult, but, mm-hmm. and they would, they would approach their fathers and ask, you know, what, what do I do with this? You know, what am I supposed to dirty myself with this kind of thing? And, mm. and so for Americans or the West to say that we know what's right for them, or, you know, we need to change their, their way of thinking. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's not just, you know, it's not just introducing democracy right. to them. It's right. it's changing the way they perceive each other mm-hmm. and their habits. Mm-hmm. And it's you know how do how do we reduce the number of smokers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, so the passion have some pretty ingrained beliefs, very different from us, and that should be a signal to us that. It's not a thing where you walk in one day, flip a switch, introduce democracy, and then, you know, establish elections. Here's somebody in charge, walk away, and okay, now we're great foreign partners, and let's move on to the next thing. Sure. And do we have a track record of having done that anywhere? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in a a place like Japan, Mm -hmm. post-World War II, Mm-hmm. where, you know, Imperial Japan probably looked very different from, I, I don't want to belittle it, but the yeah. sort of the symbolic emperor mm-hmm. position. It's in some ways, you know, I hear an arrogant American saying <laughs> that, you know, any of the monarchy systems, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're you know, if, if it's just kind of a symbolic leadership position when you have a, a parliament there mm-hmm. um, establishing law and whatnot. But, you know, after World War II, we occupied Japan and we essentially helped them draft their constitution that said that they would not raise an army to even be able to protect themselves. And the emperor would just be a symbol. Mm -hmm. And we even, I think, influenced Japan to allow women to vote there. And Mm. that just wouldn't have been something that, that would have happened so quickly if it hadn't been probably forced upon them by the United States. And, mm-hmm. and, and we had, obviously, the differences. We had actually conquered that nation. And with Afghanistan, it does not appear that we ever conquered the terrorists yes. in Afghanistan. Yeah, and that's a shift in American will, the, the general thought of what's acceptable on an international level. Whereas in World War II, you know, we'd been slighted like we had been on 9-11. You know, somebody had slighted us, but a non-state actor on 9-11, it wasn't a state. It wasn't a nation coming at us mm-hmm. that we could point the finger at and say, okay, we are going to destroy you politically and establish something that's acceptable to us like we did in Germany and, and Japan, right. Italy. Mm-hmm. And here we are attempting to try and be rational and reasonable and say, you know, there's, you, you are allowing, facilitating these groups to train in your country, and then they are reaching out from your country to hurt other people all across the planet, and that's not acceptable. So we're going to come in and sort of remove the cancer mm. and try and make sure that your government is in a control position to be able to prevent that so that we don't have to do, we can do it diplomatically in the future, you know, because clearly you're not capable of doing it yourself or mm-hmm. where we wouldn't be here. So yeah, it's a different perspective dealing with non-state actors, but also because of how global we are today, it just, no one has a stomach for a bully. 
and it you look a bit like a bully going into a country and annihilating them sociopolitically and and then um, you know occupying them. After so that. instead, what we do is we go in and we spend billions building up the Afghan democracy, Afghan army, and then when we really get serious about wanting to leave, which is around 2017, then we start talks with the Taliban. So explain that to me. Like, why do we do that? Yeah. I, is that I, admitting defeat? I mean, that's what it looks like. In in a way, I think it it is out of necessity. So we had reached, the United States had reached a culminating point where Politically, we were unwilling to continue to put an effort into policing that area and maintaining a presence there to maintain the conditions that we wanted. Mm -hmm. And so when our leadership through presidential administration, through the bureaucracies that, that are in place, Department of State, Department of Defense, when we make the decision that we need to eliminate our presence there militarily. What are the consequences of that? And if, if we're not going to be there militarily and providing the, the support that we do to maintain these conditions, wh what does it look like? Well, mm -hmm. it, it looked like an Afghani government that was very reliant upon the United States, mm -hmm. in this case, and some coalition partners to provide the logistics that they needed, the intelligence that they needed in order to maintain control. Mm -hmm. And so without, without those assets mm -hmm. being made available to them, it was clear that the Taliban would be a player. And where the Taliban was obviously our mortal enemy Mm -hmm. and, and because what they stood for, what they supported was the antithesis of our goals, mm -hmm. of the United States goals. And so by, by not supporting the Afghan government and the ways that, that we knew they would need, um, they were just too immature to be able to do it on their own. So we, we knew we were going to have to deal with the gorilla in mm -hmm. the room, which was the Taliban. And so how do you how do you establish the conditions to develop a relationship with this mortal enemy? How do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. And the answer can only be diplomacy, right? When you don't you're not gonna you're not willing to back it up with a military. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how do you act diplomatically with who, you know, the the group that was your mortal enemy, you, you try and make deals hmm. with them and you hope that they stick to their deals. Right. And the deal, you know, was primarily not to hurt us. It had really nothing to do with what was happening in Afghanistan. So yeah. you said something interesting when we were talking for the story that is in today's paper, and that was about the narrative, you know, that we construct, which is very important. And you said something that was... You know, it's not just about perception, it's all about perception and how we, you know, maybe could have created a better environment there without being in a, you know, full scale combat operation perpetually. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So I think we've suffered a major strategic failure by our senior level leadership in, in the United States, not clearly and reasonably communicating to their constituents 
what might have been needed in Afghanistan to maintain uh, what the constituency, what we would believe would be a reasonable environment, mm-hmm. which you know for us is women are treated as equals. They, mm-hmm. they should have an opportunity to be educated and they should have an opportunity to do whatever they're capable of doing, becoming doctors and lawyers and mm-hmm. scientists mm-hmm. and teachers. and Because that is what's at stake here. Yeah, largely. Mm-hmm. And, and other reasonable things, like mm-hmm. someone commits a crime, they're not stoned in the street. Sure, right. You know, there's some hu- humane way of dealing and trying to correct the behavior, mm-hmm. whatever that is, even if it's, you know, talking to a, a married woman or something, you know, I'd, that may be a major slight to them, but is it reasonable to stone them in the street for it kind of thing or cut off their hands or, or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. So I think it was a, a major strategic error um, for many different administrations to not shape the messaging. And this sounds like bad marketing talk. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be guilty of that. But no. the messaging, instead of, hey, we're conducting, we're still conducting combat operations in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Well, they are combat operations, but really they're being led by the Afghan National Army and, and we're providing support for them. Mm-hmm. So it's it, really our efforts have shifted from combat operations. I mean, we may still conduct airstrikes and there's drones that are being you know employed and, right. and we have uh, patrols going out and they're policing the area. Mm-hmm. But largely we were, had shifted from a combat role to a support role. Security uh, assistance. Security assistance and, right. and, and supporting the afghan government to Mm -hmm. be able to do what it needed to to maintain control and that we knew it couldn't do without our assistance we knew it do we do that with any other government in the world we we do it all over the place i think and really many times to our own detriment Mm. um, where you'll see other nations who want to have an influence in a region and instead of bringing in the military the u.s we bring in the military right when we're in africa we're in south america we're all we're everywhere Mm -hmm. and when we want to have when the united states wants to have a a presence someplace what do they do they send in well let's do let's do some joint military training Mm. and and let's you know let's let's do some stuff together and then oh hey let's do some business too oh interesting with other countries you'll see them go into places like africa and whatnot well hey you've got great natural resources we'd we'd like to have a good relationship with you let's do business Mm. and it's business people going in there it's funny okay (laughs) so the united states has become very and and we have this this massive stick to wield right with our with our military when really it probably should be the you know the foreign service and Department of State and whatnot, establishing these relationships. And we talk about nation building. Sure. That that kind of thing. And that's really Department of State function, but we don't fund the Department of State like we fund the Department of Defense. So we don't have, it doesn't have the resources necessary. And, and, you know, that's something I I think, you know, as we talk more about Afghanistan and our withdrawal from there is, you know, was Department of State's role in getting Americans out and and setting the conditions for, you know, our friends to be out of there when we walk away. So normally when we talk about we don't want to be the police of the world, it is normally about the Mideast whenever we talk about those types of things. But I mean, we really do this elsewhere for long periods of time, like 20 years, like we did in Afghanistan. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it sounds like what it would have taken is for us to play that role. 
Yeah. For into perpetuity. Yeah. Um, or until we actually really did get the Afghani military up to standards that could keep the Taliban in check. Yeah. And who knows how long that would have taken. But yeah, the, the perfect business model for that is, again, post-World War II, Germany, German occupation, Italy and, and Japan. Um, and you look at the number of U.S. bases that have been established there and, you know, what were the origins of those bases and why are they still there? Hmm. How different? Seventy-five years later, and how different? And and oh, by the way, the the dollar amount to maintain those bases in 2014 was estimated to be something like eighty-five to a hundred billion dollars. Hmm. Wow! In one wow. fiscal year. So, and that's just estimates because it's so complicated that you know no single accountant could sit down and and you know put on the green eye shades and figure out how much money it really was. Right. It's too right. complex. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the, so the business model, as you call it, does exist in other places, but here we, you know, lost all stomach for being over there either for war, which is what the narrative was, but it was never even really proposed. Look, we know we can't change this society. I mean, the society that we are fighting or that we're helping the Afghani army fight we know we can't change it but afghan from the inside out could change it and we need more time to be able to do that is that what you're talking about when you talk about the narrative changing or shifting yes, absolutely okay. yeah okay. and that's exactly what it is and and shifting the way we think about our approach there and keeping things in perspective our, our presence maintaining a presence there and making sure that everybody understands, hey, you know, the last combat casualty killed in, in Afghanistan was 18 months prior to mm. this last month. Mm -hmm. And Do you that, know how many we had? I, I know it was 1,800 at the decade mark, but I couldn't, not that any life killed is, you know, should be looked at as, as oh, it was only that. That's not what I'm saying. But I mean, the number of casualties does have an important role. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. Mm -hmm. And and there's casualties beyond the kinetic, you know, killed in action, you oh, know, right. that someone was killed by a bomb or, or small arms fire or something. Absolutely. There's also the 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 accidents that happened that we hear less about, you know, someone being crushed by a truck mm -hmm. or suicide in country or PTSD. You know, yeah. The PTSD. It's amazing what we've learned since, or what we've been willing to acknowledge mm. since Vietnam and, and World mm -hmm. War II and, and the mental toll it takes on, on people mm -hmm. um, and just our, our willingness to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But there, there is certainly a human toll to those operations. It's an all volunteer force mm -hmm. in the military today. And we constantly have to ask ourselves. What do you mean by that? All volunteer well, forces. Oh, oh, yeah, yes, no we don't draft. Have the draft. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have sure. mandatory service like many sure. of our friends do. Right. And so, as volunteers, it's it's just a, it's a different perspective when you're giving up your time and taking on risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and our families understand that when we when we let our children go and talk to the recruiter. But we also have that expectation that our sons and daughters are going to be taken care of mm -hmm. in their service and mm -hmm. their volunteer service. So mm -hmm. there's a certain responsibility that we as parents 
expect mm-hmm. of our mm-hmm. country when, when we let our volunteers go and do what they do. Right. But as volunteers, we, we say, I, I want to do, because I, I, I have faith that the United States is going to act in good conscience in dealing with our foreign partners like Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I understand that while there's risk at, at placing people there, that the things they're doing are creating conditions so that all of the women of Afghanistan can have an opportunity to go to school mm-hmm. and to have a career and to choose their partner and to choose whether or not to have children and to have those humane decisions mm-hmm. to themselves. And so we understand that there's a, there's a price for that. We understand when, when Sturgeon Bay Police Department, you know, officer, you name him or her, Mm-hmm. puts on their uniform and they're going out to represent us to maintain safety in our community. Right. It, it's the same thing. There's a risk that they take. Mm-hmm. There's a risk that they take to support the greater good. Right. And so we have to keep that in perspective when we're in places like Afghanistan, when we're in places like Kosovo, when, when we're all over the world, when mm-hmm. we're going into a place like Somalia to help them eat because the warlords there are hoarding all the food for power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We understand we're putting our sons and daughters at risk by putting them there, but there's a greater good, sure. a greater purpose. And we just, it's messaging that helps us understand the perspective, not to manipulate people, but, yeah. but to maintain perspective. Sure. And that would have been, um, you know, when you say messaging, when anybody says messaging, I mean, there's an implicity there that it's a, it's a lie, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a spin on the right. truth. I hate to say it, but I can't think of how else to. Sure. But no, it. I understand what you're saying in this sense. And, and really this messaging would have been the truth. You know, yeah. it's so hard to actually, because we're so accustomed to packaging things yeah. and to making sure that, you know, the optics look good before we say it or put it out there. And that would have been more in line with the truth. Look, you know, we don't think that we can actually get rid of the Taliban um, yet. And we can't even give you a timeline for that. But we know that we need to keep X number of people here to maintain security forces. So X, Y, and Z can happen to the population, which is, you know, 60% of Afghans, you know, that believe that women should be able to go to school or, you know, what other inhumanities that the Taliban actually you know, brings down upon the people when they're in power. So let's talk about the withdrawal. Obviously, that is something that the current administration is getting a lot of uh, flack about. We talked about it at length. You think it could have been handled far, far better. And I think that's the overriding narrative about this. So can can you give us an, uh, um, an idea of what you think went wrong ultimately? Yeah. Well, I can give you my opinion on it. Which, well, which absolutely. Is, sure. Yeah. It's going to be more educated than mine. Sure. sure. <laughs> so withdrawing from anywhere in a controlled manner can be controlled. We have the know-how, we have the resources, we have the ability to insert ourselves anywhere on the planet and to remove ourselves anywhere on the planet. And we do. And we do. And so I think here, I think many of us are scratching our heads at how we saw this play out because it's not that uncommon for us to do this from a training perspective. We, we do it for training operations all over the place all the time. We do non-combatant evacuation operations all over the planet all the time, whether it's because of humanitarian issues, there's a natural disaster, 
whatever that's that's happening there, we are able to insert ourselves and remove ourselves very effectively and, and efficiently. And so here as we as we watched um, events take place in Afghanistan, it felt completely disjointed, I think, to many of us. And it feels like a, a leadership failure because the people who are executing it know what to do. Mm. And they're very good at it. They've mm-hmm. been well-trained at it. If the United States knew that it was going to be withdrawing, it seems like there would have been a lot of planning going on to understand what do we need to take with us, mm-hmm. and that's people and equipment, and how are we going to do that, mm-hmm. right? And the U.S. military is great at plan. We have plans on the shelf to do everything. Mm. There's plans on the shelf, and they're constantly being updated. So there's very little that that hasn't been thought about by a lot of smart people. And so in this effort, when we see things like drawing down to an untenable location like the airport in Kabul. And only one drawdown point. Yeah, one one spot that has no standoff, that is extremely vulnerable to very easy attack. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. How did how did we step away from a massive, fantastic facility like Bagram mm-hmm. and give that up for what we did? And Bagram was an airport about an hour away from Kabul, and and that was in, in July of 20, 2021. 20, that's right. Yeah. That was just this year when yeah, it was we just just, this, just a few months ago, right? When we left overnight, and it was reported that the commander there didn't even know that we had left and found out it few hours afterwards. Yeah. So we're going to hand the baton to an Afghan commander, right? Yeah. We've got this fantastic facility in Bagram and we're going to hand it over to the Afghan national forces. And we have an individual selected. You're going to be in charge of the base and you're going to have, you know, be able to conduct operations here. And, and it's exactly, this is, this is exactly what the United States wanted to be able to operate from. Here you go. Mm -hmm. And somehow we made the decision in the literally in the middle of the night, and I think it was July 5th even, the Afghan commander that's supposed to be taken over is woken up by somebody who says, hey, the Americans are gone. The electricity's been turned off, the water's been shut off, and they're gone. Did you know? And he came out and said, I, I didn't know. Now, there are folks across the planet who are known for exaggeration, and and sometimes you know when you get um, senior leaders and, and anywhere, okay, we like to cover ourselves. So it's hard mm-hmm. to say what the the narrative you know was from him if if it was genuine or, or okay. not. I don't know. Okay, but it seems strange that he felt like he needed to come out and say that. Yeah, yeah. If sure. it hadn't been true, I I don't understand um, why he would be lying. Okay, but in any event, I mean we. we did hand it off, right? We even if it. we even if we told them, yeah. and he just forgot to let them know to switch over the electricity or the water. Yeah. I mean, we did leave. Yeah, and in a matter of days later, mm-hmm. we're we're trying to conduct evacuation operations from a tiny little airfield right next to the capital, mm. kind of thing. And and so it doesn't make sense why we would make that decision. I mean, when you're just thinking days ahead. Yeah, sure. Right. And, and then uh, the execution of, of the withdrawal from, from Kabul, 
there were no clear answers how many Americans are still here. Sure. I, even if you're going out with leaflets and saying, hey, the U.S. is leaving, mm-hmm. you need to be at the airport, you know, by this day, you know, have, be registered with the U.S. Embassy, whatever, and, you know, make your withdrawal, you know, make your way out of the country yes. safely so that you'll be okay. And there are stories directly from Americans that I've heard, I mean, that I've listened to on the radio on PBS that they, they could not get to the gate. They yeah. absolutely physically could not get to the gate in order to be able to get out in time. Yeah. It, it, you know, there's talk about how fast the Taliban expanded to take control of the country and, and well, how could they have done that? Well, the, they were the, the Taliban were everywhere. They, they were, were always everywhere. And that's the thing about non-state actors. They're not wearing a uniform. Mm-hmm. They're your neighbor. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're the guy living upstairs down the street. They're the guy, you know, selling you your breakfast kind mm-hmm. of thing. They're everywhere. And so how naive is it of us to say that they're not going to step out of the shadows mm-hmm. as soon as we don't have force patrols walking around and making sure that they don't do anything we don't want them to. Right. You know, they're, they're not going to rip you know, rip their outer layer off. And now they've got this Taliban uniform on, right. on underneath, you know I mean? So it seems naive for us to, to be surprised mm-hmm. by this. Yeah. And who exactly is surprised, right? right? I mean, so the November 2020 is when we absolutely said we are leaving by this date. Right. So, I mean, that was, well, it was in the agreement and then, yeah. and then Biden changed it. But even with November, knowing absolutely that we were going to be completely out from November until I think the original date was May, I want to say. Is that a, is that a long enough period of time to leave after being in a country for, for 20 years? Well, so maybe. Okay. And so that's feasible. It's it's feasible because I was withdrawing us in 2012. You know, I was reducing our footprint there. So how much of that had been happening in the last eight years? Right. Okay. So, you know, where are we? And unless you're, you're getting briefed on, you know, the current status of things, you, you, you you don't know, you know, what was our footprint Mm -hmm. and, but even we had to understand that. So, so then operationally we give up this, this airfield we've got established and, and we find ourselves cornered in this extremely exposed airfield. And then tactically uh, to say that we haven't established cordons, we haven't established layers of security Mm -hmm. to be able to conduct operations. And we're relying on the Taliban for our outer security, man, that's, that's, uh, that's a big step. That's a big step. And that's what we did in Saigon. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, there, there's some some crazy parallels yeah. with Saigon. And yeah. so it almost seems like that's the only the way that we pull out of a, a, a war we did not win, if you want to put it that way. Well, I mean, I, but it... Yeah, I mean, you can you can look at Korea, and we, we still okay. maintain a presence in, in South Korea. Iraq um, was not like this. I mean, the drawdown was a couple of years. Yeah, and we um, ebbed and flowed. Right, right. right. Mean, to, to make sure that... But the Iraqis think differently than we do. And, yeah. and, you know, whenever you topple leadership in a place, you know, it's, the, you know, what, what do you have to do to make sure that, that the new guy is going to be successful? Okay. And sometimes it takes some adult leadership to say, listen, I know you don't want to be here, mm-hmm. but listen to the consequences if we, if we leave. Right. So strategic, operational, and, and tactical 
mistakes and we, we scratch our heads that you can see yeah. i mean as a military professional that you can see that it, this is not just well it came down to it and that last day is always the toughest yeah. you know like that last week is always it's it's not like that you can actually see some some really strange things happening that would have meant that decisions weren't made that should have been made yeah it's it's really strange it feels disjointed it's it's surreal Okay. The, the mistakes are just surreal because if a lowly Marine Lieutenant Colonel is going, this, none of this makes sense, then, mm-hmm. then you know, what, what, what is our leadership? Like, what, what, what was happening? Sure. And then, and, and there then, aren't too many lowly Lieutenant Colonels, correct? How many are there in the Marines? <laughs> well, there's, there's probably less than 600. I, okay. I, so there aren't the that many. Levels, so let's but, just put it that way. Yeah. But, and then the equipment that we left back, we, we talked about, and it's crazy, the equipment. I mean, the facilities, I mean, we built some amazing facilities. We saw it at, at um, you know, in the Hellman province and at Camp Leatherneck, the, the buildings that they were constructing that were going to be billions of dollars. And we knew we were drawing down and, and we were building these things. The The money that was poured into the U.S. Embassy, the money that was poured into Bagram, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, and okay, so we're going to, we're going to sell some equipment to, to the Afghanis. We're going to give them some, we, we, now we're talking about, you know, we, we were destroying some of the stuff in Before, place. Right. Yeah. Right. We're, we're trying to, you know, render Blowing it. Blowing it up. Yeah. As we're, we're leaving. Yes. I mean, it brings back images of people pushing helicopters off the ships off Vietnam, right? Like, mm-hmm. what, what are you doing? Since when did our money become so unimportant? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, but. Especially when you're driving uh, airplane. I don't know what you call them, those sheets that you put down. Oh, so yeah, able to, Yes, right, through, <laughs> d- through enemy territory in order to be able to save some money. Yeah. Do you think, Do you think? what about accountability? Do you think that somebody is going to be held accountable for what you saw from your experience and, and your professionalism? Do you think somebody is going to be held accountable for this? I sure hope so. I hope that there is a certain amount of responsibility. I'm skeptical that the right people will be disciplined. Mm. The, the most recent example that that I could offer was a Taliban attack on Camp Leatherneck, Camp Bastion, and Helmand which is Province where you were, Camp in, Leatherneck, in 2012, mm-hmm. where um, I think it was 15 Taliban breached um, the perimeter fence in the night, and they were able to burn down six aviate Harrier aircraft, the attack fighters that the Marines had. Mm-hmm. Um, they killed two Marines, mm-hmm. injured others, and they were able to do some other damage on the base. As a result of that, two two-star Marine generals were relieved. And um, mm. they were both gentlemen that I respected, and I was surprised the the findings from the investigations that were done and and how it all kind of went down mm-hmm. but two major generals were relieved mm-hmm. and accountability kind of stopped with them okay but as as we look at the discipline i mean they they were responsible they were in command they sure. they um never gave up the responsibility of command mm. while they were there they they were responsible for it it happened and and so they were punished mm-hmm. but they were working in an environment that was being dictated to them by other decision makers they were doing the best that they could mm-hmm. um in the circumstances but those other decision makers were not were not held accountable sure. and and i don't think 
I don't think things would have happened. They did if um, these two general officers hadn't been constrained the way they they were. So now, and it takes time. I mean, right. it may take a year. There'll be investigations will be done, I have no doubt. Oh, really? Um, I mean, even though President Biden is actually standing by, behind the withdrawal and has not indicated that he thinks that it went poorly in any way? Yeah, I, I suspect, you know, I can't say for certain because oh, I'm not sure. there, but I, I suspect within the Department of Defense, there will be there will be some investigations conducted. Some mm-hmm. pretty smart people will step in and, and analyze what happened. Uh, there'll be after actions mm-hmm. um, established. And this is how we learn. I mean, this is a good thing. We, we do this. We f- didn't do it after Saigon, obviously, because of parallels. Well, I, I think exist. we did. But what okay. we do with that information is, well, sure. you know, you take it or leave it. But yeah. I, I suspect it was probably done. Um, and it may not have been relevant because where else did we, you know, how else did we find ourselves in that position until, you know, 50 years later or something, sure. 40 years later? So I, I suspect investigations will be done um, within the Department of Defense. Department of State will probably do their own stuff. And based on the results of those investigations, some folks, I suspect, will probably be held accountable. But it always seems um, like the powerful mm. find others to really lay the blame with. Sure. And, and so in the military, because we have such a code of honor with ourselves, you know, we're, we're always willing to stand up and say, hey, I was responsible. I was in command. Mm-hmm. I was responsible. And I should suffer the consequences mm-hmm. from that. But, you know, a lot of times we have civilian leadership that feels slippery. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, we're going to continue to watch it now. I feel like I have, I don't know, really not been paying attention this whole time. And I know that, you know, maybe we could not build up the democracy there, but I understand that we did build quite a terrific media environment. And already that media environment is starting to shut down. The state-controlled television um, has taken the women off and the... I guess the one that we actually started with a a number of grants, which was the largest privately held TV station has taken certain programming off, but, and some of the journalists have already left uh, the country. So things are, you know, I guess it's going to take a little while for us to find out what actually happens as a result of the Taliban's rule. But Craig, thank you so much for coming in and spending all of this time, you know, trying to walk, us through all of this um it really helps to get some perspective yeah so thanks so much yeah thank you and thank you thank you for the dialogue it's it's nice to see the dialogue there's they're very polarizing topics Mm -hmm. and it can be difficult stuff to talk about it but when we're not willing to talk about it how do we really learn right Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.